Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Massachusetts-based musician Heather Maloney released her fourth studio album this year. But before scoring a record deal and touring the country, Maloney lived at a meditation retreat center for three years. I reached this point where my love for music kind of ended, and then there was this empty space. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. How Maloney wrote her first song during silent meditation, her career grew from there. What was missing from my love for music was having something to say. I woke up alone today to the ocean spray to the sound of a wave. And we're still finding ways to send the carrier pigeons of old racing across the sky. No way a bird can get out until they get to the race station in the Mara. They'll let them out. They'll fly home. Plus the revival of the local grain economy for your bread and for your beer. I know where this came from. I know the farmer. I know the person that milled it. So now we're going, but we're really not grinding corn. I'm going to give it a little extra. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks so much for joining us. Our first guest today is Heather Maloney. She's a singer-songwriter based in western Massachusetts. Her music has been described as utterly gorgeous and visceral by the New York Times. Heather's collaborated with the Avit Brothers, Band of Horses, and members of the band Dawes, among others. And she's touring around the country after releasing her fourth full-length album this summer. It's called Soil in the Sky. Heather Maloney, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So I do want to start out with a song. It's from your recent album, and it's called All in Your Name. You're going to play an acoustic version of this song. But before you do, I'm wondering if you could talk about the story behind this song. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, This is sort of one of my most direct, uh, probably the song that most directly deals with loss. And uh, I wrote it shortly after having experienced a loss in my own family um, and uh, it kind of felt like a really raw and personal song. I know you uh, you prefer not to talk about the specifics of who the song is about. I'm wondering if you could talk about um, at what point in your personal grieving process you were able to sit down and write this song. Gosh, I mean... This was one of the writing experiences that I had right in the thick of the experience. So it was literally the week um, that uh, this family member had passed. It was maybe within three days that I kind of locked myself in a little room and, and picked up my guitar and just used it as a tool to process what I was experiencing. Let's hear all in your name from your album, Soil in the Sky. Ain't that your jacket in the mudroom? Ain't those your shoes there by the door? You never left the house without them. Now you don't need them anymore. 
Ain't those your keys there on the table? And they've gone everywhere you go. They opened every door you walked through, turned every engine on your road. I'd run those keys out to the driveway, joke that you wouldn't have gone far. And now you're further than you've ever been from me, than you've ever been from me. Like a song, I can't see you, but you move me just the same. Like the radio waves all through the air, you invisibly make it okay. Like the moon, I can't touch you, but you pull me just the same. Like the crashing of waves all through the ocean, I rise and I fall in your name, all in your name. They say at first the pain is piercing, an angry bee inside your chest, but it can't sting like that forever, and even heartbreak. Takes a rest. They say just like a sword in battle, a sharpened blade will slowly dull. With every thought inside my mind that you possess, it'll hurt a little less. And like a song, I can't see you, but you move me just the Like the radio waves all through the air, you invisibly make it okay. Like the moon, I can't touch you, but you pull me just the same. Like the crashing of waves all through the ocean, I rise and I fall in your name. so much. I think what the what the listeners can't see is how um, how engaged in the song you are as you're playing. 
Um, and I, I, I actually saw you play at a festival this summer. And one of the things that stuck out to me as you were playing the song was how many members of the audience, including me, were crying as you were playing. Um, and I wonder what that's been like to to play this song and have that kind of impact on your audience. Um, I really appreciate that question in particular because it's a phenomenon that I've noticed over the past couple of years in particular. I think what I what I'm really promoting at at my shows and for my, and this is selfish it's it's for myself included is uh like a willingness to feel the entirety of the emotional spectrum and like and kind of normalize uh something like sadness because it's so normal and we're so conditioned to uh hide it away in public spaces so I've I've really at first I felt a little weird about, you know, the the tears, the tears phenomenon. But now it feels like something I really um, appreciate. I want to switch gears. Um, you're based out of Western Massachusetts now, but you grew up in New Jersey. And what was your childhood like and how has it influenced who you are as a musician today? Um, I had kind of a weird childhood. I guess a lot of people say that, but um, I grew up in a house without television or sugar and um, the main form of entertainment uh, that everyone kind of revolved around was a record player. And so from the time I was very little, kind of the the, the biggest influences on me uh, were musicians and mainly like folk musicians and, and songwriters from the 60s and 70s. So a lot of Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I mean, those guys were sort of my my centerpiece um, from the start. So when you were 20, you were studying to get have a music degree in operatic singing, um, but you quit and you went to a silent meditation retreat in Massachusetts. I think it was called Insight Meditation Society. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. What happened? Why why make that change? I I knew that I loved music at that point in my life. Um but my love for music felt like it had uh an extent. Like I reached this point like and where my love for music kind of ended and then there was this empty space. And what I realized years later at the meditation retreat center was that um, what was missing from my love for music was having something to say uh, because I had been studying how to say it. I had been studying how to use my voice. I had been studying music theory. But the meaning underneath all of it wasn't really complete. And I mean I can't say that it's complete now. The motivating factor that I was most aware of when I quit was – pretty simple. And the reason why a lot of people are drawn to meditation and that was suffering. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was um, I was depressed in college and I uh, had a lot of, you know, childhood traumas that I hadn't really done any work on or, or dug into. They were just sort of, you know, when you have these unchecked parts of your um, emotional self, they, they drive you and they're in the driver's seat. And I had really lived that way up until my early 20s. Yeah. yeah. So as you're there at the Meditation Retreat Center, I think you were there for about three years, um, what was the point where you started 
writing songs for the first time? Um, I was on staff there. So um, and when you're on staff, there most of the land and the and most of the buildings are designated spaces of what they call noble silence, which not only means that you're not speaking to people, but you're not making eye contact. You're not communicating in pretty much almost any way. And so I would journal and sometimes that journaling would kind of turn into poetry. But there was a retreat and about three days in to that week, I just had so much like pain in my heart. It was just it would just unfold and I'd be like, okay, I got to the bottom of it and I'd take a deep breath and I would feel like, okay, I I faced the pain, I freed it, it's gone, I'm healed, you know? And then on day three, this little melody with words attached came worming its way into my mind. And it was like this it was like what they would call like a mantra. And the lyrics were, if your heart is aching, let it ache. And and I heard it with a melody. Do you remember what the melody was? <laughs> Do you want me to sing it right now? <laughs> Just a little snippet. Okay. Um, if your heart is aching, let it ache. Let it weigh, let it throb, let it break. If your heart is aching, let it ache. So that was the whole thing. And if for the first time, I broke noble silence. Because I ran to my cottage and I picked up the mandolin and I was like, I need to put this, I need to get this from inside out and write it down. It was like also the first moment that I realized I I actually have things to say that I feel inspired by. Was it hard after that to to be silent? <laughs> Did you feel like the songs were just <laughs> nagging at you as you were trying to sit there? That really hasn't happened that way um, too much since. And, and the writing, that that definitely feels like it opened up a little writing floodgate for me. Um, but it, a lot of the writing since then, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily something that's come up in meditation. That was just sort of a little, I don't know, the little thing that opened the gate, I guess. So you've you've released multiple albums since that time at the Meditation Retreat Center. Some of them were self-released. Some were with the, the record company that you're now signed with. Um, in, in 2014, you released an EP with another Massachusetts band called Darling Side, and you covered Woodstock by Joni Mitchell, who you listened to as a kid. And let's just take a listen for a moment to that cover.
Okay, that's you singing with Darling Side, a cover of Woodstock by Joni Mitchell. And after you released that cover, a New York Times blog piece compared you to Joni Mitchell. Is it safe to say that she influenced you and is an idol of sorts? <laughs> Very safe to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's probably the number one for me. <laughs> yeah. And how do you find her uh, entering your music? Gosh, uh, I think first and foremost, when I really discovered like the confessional aspect of her songwriting, she can just break my heart and build me up again in a song. And like that's a like that's magic. And I, I want to like taste that magic. But then I the the other piece and maybe equal equally inspiring to me is the way that she had you know, the way that she used her voice over the years. I mean, her voice is such an instrument, I think. Nobody's ever really come close to using their voice just in the way that she did. And and that inspires me so much, like so much. Yeah. So let's let's hear some more music. Could you play the song What I Don't Know Too, also from your most recent album? Yes. Should have given Joni credit for the uh, alternate tunings too. <laughs> Woke up a long way from you today I am a long way Next to an ocean That I don't know at all But can you ever really know Everything that lies below The face of what you look at every day I woke up alone today To the ocean spray To the sound of waves Rush like blood from my head As I roll and somewhere in the morning haze I caught an image of your face An old friend and a stranger all in one Honey, there's no way that I'll ever know oh, Everything about you But oh, how I love what I do Honey, I But I don't know too I drove through the blue dawn in Oregon To California's sun Along a sea that was strangely to my right And as the sun warmed up my steering wheel I remembered how your body feels familiar But always a little new Honey, there's no way that I'll ever know Oh, everything about you But oh, how I love what I do Honey, I love What I don't know too It's what I don't Trying to squeeze the sea and the sky into a song My little eyes behold enormous things I'd see it all if I had wings But none of it has majesty like yours 
Honey, there's no way that I'll ever know Oh, everything about you But oh, how I love what I do That's my guest, Heather Maloney, playing What I Don't Know Too from her album Soil in the Sky, which came out this summer. So your career has been building and building. Um, Back when you stopped pursuing music for a a brief time to go to the meditation um, retreat center, you were trying to kind of escape that and find your real purpose in music, I guess. Do you feel like there will never be that moment again where you just want to Say, oh, music, I need a break. <laughs> um, music feels really integrated now into, like, now music feels like not just my job, but it also is my healing. And it's, yeah, it, music has really become such a big part of just growing and and who I am. Yeah. Heather Maloney is a singer-songwriter based in Massachusetts. Heather, thank you so much for talking with me. Morgan, thank you for the amazing questions. Thank you for having me. After the break, a wife falls down the stairs at church and her husband writes about it. Plus, the long-lost local grain economy sees a revival. It's next. Everything is making me break. Look at how the waves crash and fall. Every time the dam breaks, I remember what a hundred years does to a wall. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Tim Clark has been writing personal essays for about 40 years. He's an editor at the Old Farmer's Almanac in Dublin, New Hampshire. He says he spent so many years writing essays that he'll be walking around and say, that's an essay, or there's another one. Tim says that's what was happening when he watched his wife, May, get carted away on a stretcher to the ambulance. 
He doesn't know if he should be ashamed or proud of that fact. But after that, Tim did write that essay. It's called The Fall, and Tim's going to read it for us now. After my wife, May, fell down the ten steps leading to the choir loft in our church, the first thing she wanted to know was if the choir, who were downstairs in the sanctuary, had heard her cry out. None of us could remember hearing a cry. What we heard was a rumbling sound, the kind you hear when a thick layer of snow slides off a roof during a thaw. May, I called out. There was no answer. Our choir director was at the piano, closest to the bottom of the stairs, so he got there first. May was crumpled at the bottom of the stairs, lying on her left side, her head almost in the sanctuary, her right foot and ankle still on the lowest stair. Her foot drooped down at an unnatural angle. Scattered around her were the Christmas carol books she'd gone upstairs to collect for rehearsal. It was the first week of December. Her first words were to our director. I'm sorry to interrupt rehearsal. Then she said, Give me a minute and I'll be right there. He looked at her dangling foot and said, I don't think so. Our volunteer fire department's ambulance crew arrived in a few minutes. These were our neighbors. The oldest was Brian, our former road agent, whom we've known since we moved to this small New Hampshire town 40 years ago. The youngest, Corey, went to school with our youngest child. The fire chief, Tom, held May's head perfectly still and made a few jokes. They went about their work swiftly and competently. After asking May when she felt pain, her right wrist and ankle, both of which were broken, and her neck, they cut off her new winter coat and her favorite flannel-lined jeans and carefully, tenderly moved her onto a backboard. They had to maneuver down a short staircase to the front door and then into the rescue vehicle. There was a slow, almost sacramental quality to each motion. They might have been carrying the Ark of the Covenant. I followed them, clutching her ruined clothes. I had some notion she might want to use the jeans to patch other clothes, but mostly I just didn't want to let go of them. I got into our car and followed them to our local hospital, where we found Eric, the emergency room doc, another neighbor. After pain medication and x-rays, May was taken away for a CAT scan. She was clearly not leaving. So I went home and to bed, only to be awakened by a phone call from Eric. He had found a possible brain bleed in the scans and sent her off to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, where there were neurosurgeons available if necessary. And that's how your life changes. Not with an anguished cry, but with the sound of snow sliding off the roof during a thaw. The fall was a year ago, and she's doing fine now. It could have been much worse. The scans found a blood clot in her lung, possibly from an earlier injury, and surgeons inserted a device in her chest that would protect her if the clot started to move. It's possible that her tumble down the stairs saved her life. And every time we see Brian, or Corey, or Tom, or Eric, in the general store, or at the post office, or at church, we share a special smile and remind ourselves, if we must have a life-threatening crisis, how grateful we are. 
to do it among friends. That was Tim Clark reading his first-person essay, The Fall. The essay is featured in Yankee Magazine's special holiday issue this year. The full issue is available at newsstands and newengland.com. Our next two stories are about local food producers in New England and the impact of large-scale producers on their businesses. We start in Vermont, where organic dairy farmers say there's milk in their market that's not actually organic. They say large-scale producers are getting away with this because industry standards are inconsistently enforced. The farmers are asking Congress to help close regulatory loopholes they say give large farms in the West and Midwest a big advantage. And to tell this story, Vermont Public Radio's John Dillon takes us back to earlier this year when birds were still singing and the grass was green. On Stony Pond Farm in Fairfield, young Jersey heifers do their young heifer thing looking cute as they chew their cuds or graze in the shin-high grass. Farmer Tyler Webb is giving a tour of the operation, which he runs with his wife Melanie. He says these animals were born here and raised on pasture grown without pesticides or chemical fertilizers, just as the organic standards require. That's a big investment in time and money could take really to get a, a, a calf to a point where she's bred and becomes a cow or even to get to about this point it would cost a farmer about a thousand dollars but there's a payoff in the form of a milk check that despite some declines is fatter than ones paid to conventional farmers webb says the price he earns from the organic valley co-op allows his family to invest in his growing operation and by extension in the local community it was this sustainable pay price that allowed us to, what I would guess amongst all of uh, my farming friends and colleagues here, would agree that if a farmer earns a dollar, or someone gives a farmer a dollar, we're going to spend a dollar twenty-five of that here in our local economy. Organic standards cover many facets of the farm operation, from feed to pasture to the use of medication like antibiotics. Yet organic advocates say some farmers in the West and Midwest are exploiting two loopholes. One is a rule that requires animals to graze most of their time on pasture. The other is called the origin of livestock rule. It says that a farmer's herd must be raised organically once it's transitioned to organic methods. The intent of the origin rule can be evaded, however, when farmers cull their herds rapidly and replace their livestock with those raised using conventional feed and medical treatment, which costs much less. Adam Worthison of Organic Valley says these large operations can save $600 to $1,000 for each cow. That's per animal. And if you're on an operation that's culling quickly, you can see you would have quite a bit of cost advantage. The pasture standard is also ignored, organic advocates say. They point to one mega 15,000-cow farm that supplies the organic milk sold under Walmart's house brand. A 2017 investigation by the Washington Post showed that this Colorado farm is a virtual feedlot with just a few hundred cows outside at a time. By contrast, all of Jersey's on Stony Pond Farm are on pasture until November under a rotational grazing plan that allows the cow's manure to feed the soil and the grass to quickly regenerate. Webb says it's part of a system that keeps the animals and the soil healthy. Managing like a, a functioning working landscape, and that was our goal, and, and developing this partnership, this relationship that ruminants and herbivores have with grasslands is really quite powerful. 
So the Vermont Organic Farmers and their co-op want Congress to press for stricter enforcement of the standards before Vermont farms are squeezed even more by these large farm operations out west. John Cleary is New England coordinator for Organic Valley. On the organic side, there still is you know, quite an opportunity for farmers to grow, looking towards the future, but a lot of it hinges on keeping the standards strong, right? And how do we continually improve history? And don't let some of the big corporate farms steal the standards. That last voice belongs to Senator Patrick Leahy, a longtime supporter of organic farming. It's clear Leahy, who authored the 1990 law that established the federal organic program, doesn't need much convincing. We have the law. We have to enforce the law. And we should not be writing regulations that allow huge loopholes. But here's the problem. While the organic standards are established by federal law, Local and state organizations actually do the certifying of organic farms, and the certifiers are not always consistent in how they interpret the standards, says Adam Wortheson of Organic Valley. Some certifiers allow frequent culling of herds and replacing them with stock that were not always raised according to organic methods. You have a whole set of certifiers that have two different interpretations of what the federal regulations provide. Congress needs to provide clarity. In Vermont, almost all those farmers and everyone that we know follows sort of the interpretation that we as Organic Valley understand. Once you have transitioned, then all your animals shall be organic from last third of gestation then on. A difference from that would put all our Vermont farmers at a competitive disadvantage. Leahy tells the crowd gathered at Stony Pond Farm that he'll use the upcoming budget negotiations with the U.S. Department of Agriculture to press their case. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. That story first aired back in September. Since then, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has announced it will again try to close the loophole after it failed to do so in 2015. A USDA spokesperson says they're currently reviewing public comments. But unlike in 2015, they will be proceeding to the next stage and writing a final rule. The local food movement has made it easier to find fresh veggies and fruit at farms nearby. And of course, there's that local milk and cheese. But grains, not so much. Like the dairy industry we just heard about, big industrial farms in the Midwest give us most of the flour we use here in New England. That's changing, though, as farmers, millers, and chefs rally to reinvent a lost regional grain economy. WBUR's Andrea Shea starts in a kitchen to find out more. Chef Michael Morway flips a yellow square-shaped chunk of cornbread in a pan sizzling with melted butter. He says the bread recipe is standard, but the cornmeal is not. This is the eight-row corn. You can see all the little bits in it. Blue, red, orange... At the Trillium Brewery restaurant in Boston, Morway serves his color-flecked bread with local cheese, cured meat, and seasonal fruit. The eight-row cornmeal is from around here, too. The chef first tasted it about six years ago, and it blew his mind. It tastes like corn, number one, which cornmeal doesn't taste like corn if you buy it at Stop and Shop. It's more savory, like you're eating a cob of corn. It's, It's bizarre. Native Americans grew this ancient eight-row corn strain for centuries before the pilgrims arrived. Morway started using organic heritage meal for bread and polenta at his former restaurant in Plymouth. He laments how mass production mills strip flavor, fat, and nutrients from grains, including GMO corn, grown in the breadbasket of America. 
they've messed with it so much just to grow faster, grow taller, grow thicker, make more money. It's nothing like it used to be. And then it makes you wonder what we did wrong. So I know where this came from. I know the farmer. I know the person that milled it. That person is Kim Van Warmer at the Plymouth Plantation Grist Mill. So this is a flint corn. Flint corns are the kind of corn that ended up mostly in New England because they're very hard. Wearing a t-shirt that reads, where there's a mill, there's a way, Van Warmer gets ready to grind corn the pre-industrial way for visitors. Watching her and an assistant manipulate chunky antique wood and metal equipment is like stepping into a time machine. So now we're going, but we're really not grinding corn. I'm going to give it a little extra. A water wheel outside powers two massive circular grinding stones inside a reconstruction of the original mill that burned down in 1837. This small-scale process is a far cry from the modern behemoth mills that make most of this country's flour. Before 1900, there were more than 25,000 grist mills across the U.S. Advances in technology and transportation lured New England grain farmers and millers west. Now, Van Warmer says, an artisan movement is rebooting a local grain economy in the Northeast. It's something that you can trace, that not only can you know the farmer that grew your tomato, you can know the farmer that grew your wheat, or know the farmer that grew the malted barley that's in the beer that you're drinking. Van Warmer works with Rhode Island and Massachusetts farmers who raise indigenous maize that's labor-intensive and expensive to grow. She's not alone in believing the region needs more mills to convert corn and other grains for the rising ranks of bakers, brewers, and chefs fueling this revival. We also have a lot of activists who are working behind the scenes trying to create the market and get people educated. That's author Amy Halloran. She traces America's grain history to the current Renaissance in her book, The New Breadbasket. She says grain has been slow to catch up to the larger local food movement. Processing it requires forgotten specialized skills and critical infrastructure lost after small mills shuttered in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was a part of our life to have a mill nearby. And now it's uncommon, but that is really changing. New micro-mills, kind of like micro-breweries, have cropped up in New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont to supply regional demand from bakers and chefs. Halloran is encouraged by the momentum, but says government incentives and wider consumer support would help get more grains in the ground. We are never going to grow all of our grain in the Northeast and New England, but there's a lot of energy to try to restore and be able to taste fresh flour and fresh malt again. Halloran's gateway taste was an oatmeal bar made with wheat grown and milled in New York State where she lives. One bite and she was hooked. She hopes more of us will consider what could be different next time we make a sandwich. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Andrea Shea. Coming up, pigeons race across the sky, and the human owners make the big bucks. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage. 
including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. This is Next. I'm Morgan Springer. Until I heard this story, I did not know pigeon racing was a thing. But it is, and this year the International Federation of American Homing Pigeon Fanciers held their annual convention and race in eastern Massachusetts. Producer Carrie Ed Harmon was there when the pigeon fanciers entered their birds in the competition. Can you tell me where we are and what we're doing? We're at the uh, Rhode Island Pigeon Club, and we're getting ready to ship the uh, 139th IF Convention Pigeon Race. It's the night before the biggest race of the season, and the Rhode Island Pigeon Club is packed. There are two floors full of silver-haired men in their 60s and 70s. They're laughing, drinking, and there are crates of pigeons everywhere. How does a homing pigeon know his way back home along the route? A route that he has never, ever flown. Do you have any birds that you think stand a good chance of winning this race? How confident I, you I hope I got a bunch of them, but you don't know until tomorrow. That's the beauty of this sport, you know? We sit in our backyard, we look up in the sky, and hope Pretty Boy shows up. There's a long table at one end of the club, and three men behind it are logging each bird and packing them into metal crates. That beeping you can hear is the sound of the pigeons getting scanned in. It's a slick operation. They've got over 500 birds to load tonight. It's already 7.30, and I'm definitely in the way. Let's go. Time to go. We're holding up everybody here. After three solid hours of scanning and packing, the pigeons are loaded into a customized trailer. So what's happening now? These guys all got loaded in? They're all locked up. It's locked. No way a bird can get out until they get to the race station in Namara. They'll let them out. They'll fly home. The driver is headed to what they call a liberation point in Rochester, New York. Tomorrow morning, the birds will be released, and that's where their real journey begins. Each pigeon has to fly at least 350 miles to make it home. They're headed for lofts in Providence, Fall River, New Bedford, and Boston. It's a dangerous journey. There are strong winds, hawks, and telephone wires ahead of them. The first one back wins $25,000. My mother hated three things. Motorcycles, pigeons, and tattoos, and I had all three. That's Steve. He and his racing partner, George, have ten pigeons on that trailer. They've been at this a long time. A lot of my friends, when we were growing up back in, in those days, we used to keep, we had pigeons. There was about 13 of us, 12, 13-year-olds. We had birds in our backyard. Just about every house down the south end of New Bedford had a pigeon loft. It was just a way of life then. This younger generation, they don't want to spend the time and the effort. They don't want to work. They just want everything to come easy. And pigeon flying isn't easy. It's work. There's always new systems and new scientific ways of doing things. The, the feeding system, the medication, it's all, it's all changed over the years. And you, ha- you have to keep reading and stay up with that stuff. And uh, it's knowledge, knowledge and dedication. Steve and George have over 75 years of experience between them. But even so, every race is unpredictable. They're going to do what they want to do. Most of the time they'll come home. Sometimes they won't. You can depend on a few of them, but that bird may be first this week and may never show up again 
Do you feel like you're always searching for that elusive bird? There's only been one secretary in the world, and that's what you're looking for in the pigeon world. You know, it's hard to find him. In Rochester, New York, just a few minutes after sunrise, the birds are released. Three, two, one. The driver reported the weather conditions at 8 were partly cloudy skies, south by southwest winds, 38 degrees, and 10-mile visibility. Once you let them go, that's it. They don't belong to anybody. They belong to themselves. The long-distant birds seem to have, uh, you could almost call it courage, to, to stay in the air for 12, 13 hours non-stop flying. You know... That's a mental thing. They have to have that courage. It's incredible. You're right. If you take a bird 600 miles away from home, no GPS, no street signs, nothing, no maps. That's incredible. Think about it. They're loyal. That's what makes them come home. You know, fly all that distance uh, week after week to come home to their their home and their perch and their, uh, their mates, you know. Hi, Steve. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Okay. Still waiting. It's 4 p.m. at the pigeon loft, <laughs> and Steve's been watching the sky for an hour. If I get a bird, it should be coming right right there, between that tree there. And the we stand in the yard together and wait for a while. Come on, let's go. The sun is just beginning to set, and the sky is turning a deep blue. Oh. <laughs> I know they're I know they're up there. I know they're coming. Once it gets dark, the birds roost for the night. So if we're going to see a pigeon today, we need to see it soon. I like to get at least one anyway in the money. It'd be nice after all this work and time. And you know, what are you going to do? After almost an hour, hello, you hear me now? Steve gets a call from his buddy John. <laughs> John says you better go to Mike's. <laughs> are they coming in at Mike's? He doesn't know. Their friend Mike has a lot more birds in the race. It breaks my heart to leave Steve and his coop, but I want to see a pigeon land. So I hit the road. Half an hour later, I'm in Wareham. Any birds yet? There's a lookout tower in Mike's yard that stands 14 feet above the ground. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I climb to the top. (laughs) Mike, you're king of the world up here. And stare up at the sky. All right, so I'm up in the air in a captain's chair. Waiting for these pigeons. We've got to get some more while I'm here. I've been at, at, at the house when the birds are coming in. Come on. Suddenly here comes the first bird. Oh, oh. Oh, what? Oh, my God. There's a pigeon coming. Oh, my God. Okay, it's flying directly overhead. It goes... Right. It... it, 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 it. Flies around the coop. Oh, there it goes, there it goes. Oh, no. They're screaming, come, 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 come. They're trying to get the darn bird to come in. He's trying to coax him over. He's got this long stick. It looks almost like an enormous pool cue. And he's just flying around, flying around. He's circling around. He's a grey pigeon. Oh, my gosh, no, he's sitting on the chimney of the house. We've all lost races around, around the coop. You go to the club and you find out you're second place by uh, yeah. 
One second. That pigeon hasn't clocked in yet, right? It's happened to everybody, yeah? Okay. Oh, my gosh. At last, the bird enters the coop. After nine solid hours in the air, he's made it home. Tonight, in the banquet hall at the Dedham Holiday Inn, the winners are announced. And the handler of this magnificent bird is my good friend, Mr. Hassan Prashkov, from Steve and George didn't make the winner's circle this time around. And tomorrow morning, when the sun comes up, just four of their birds will finally make it home. The other one's going to come any minute now. It should be coming. Carrie Ed Harmon is co-host and producer at Nashville Public Radio's podcast, Neighbors. She produced that story for Atlantic Public Media through their media training program, the Transom Story Workshop in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Emily Quirk and Jean Amatruda. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Ren Kitts, and Mile 12. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.